Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, July 31st. In today's news, President Trump calls on Americans who have recovered from COVID to donate blood plasma. Republicans rebuff Trump's suggestion to postpone the election. And White House sources say they're willing to support a coronavirus bill without a liability shield. But first, the big idea. The Department of Homeland Security has been compiling intelligence reports about the work of American journalists covering protests in Portland, Oregon, in what current and former officials call an alarming use of a government system meant to share information about suspected terrorists and other violent actors. Over the past week, the department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis has disseminated three open-source intelligence reports to federal law enforcement agencies and others. After my colleague Shane Harris broke this story on Thursday evening, the acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf ordered his intelligence office to stop collecting information on reporters and announced an investigation into the matter. Some of the leaked DHS documents revealed shortcomings in DHS's understanding of the nature of the protests in Portland, as well as techniques that intelligence analysts have used. A memo by the department's top intelligence official says personnel relied on what in the business is called FINTEL, an acronym for financial intelligence, as well as using what are called baseball cards with pictures and information about arrested protesters to try to understand their motivations and plans. Historically, military and intelligence officials have used such cards for biographical dossiers of suspected terrorists, including those targeted in lethal drone strikes. The DHS Intelligence and Analysis Office has, for years, been the butt of jokes among the larger, more established agencies like CIA and the FBI, who liken these guys to a team of junior varsity athletes. Meanwhile, after clashes between federal agents and protesters in Portland intensified again early Thursday, Adam Taylor reports that last night's protests, the first since the federal agencies agreed to pull back their officers, were a markedly more peaceful affair. Now, we've had our attention on Portland the last few weeks, but protests are continuing across the country as the national reckoning this summer over race and policing continues. Here are just some of the latest examples. The sheriff of Pinellas County, Florida, expressed anger over a tweet from the Tampa Bay Rays and announced that he may reevaluate his office's relationship with that baseball team after it tweeted that the officers who killed Brianna Taylor should be arrested. Michigan protesters are camping out near a juvenile detention center to oppose the ongoing imprisonment of a black 15-year-old girl after a judge ruled back in May that she had violated her probation by not completing schoolwork. Nebraska protesters say police used excessive force against them in Omaha while breaking up protests and making 120 arrests last weekend. California protesters gathered after a black man posted a video of himself being pulled from his car by police officers in Redlands during a traffic stop. Police in Berkeley, California, say they suspect arson in a fire that erupted at a church a few hours after the pastor draped a Black Lives Matter banner over the entryway. Meanwhile, in Alabama, Republican State Representative Will Dismuskase, who attended a private birthday party over the weekend to honor the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, Nathan Bedford Forrest, resigned from his job as a Southern Baptist pastor of a rural church 
but he says he has no plans to resign from his political office. The University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has just announced it will remove the names from campus buildings of three men who were indelibly tied to racism and white supremacy. And New York's Bronx Zoo is apologizing today for racism in its past, including putting a Central African man on display in its monkey house for an exhibit in 1906. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we end the week. Number one, Thursday was the fourth consecutive day that the United States reported more than 1,000 coronavirus deaths. The tally of confirmed new cases increased by more than 69,000, with Missouri, Mississippi, Ohio, and Hawaii among the states setting new records. President Trump visited the American Red Cross headquarters in D.C. to encourage Americans who have recovered from COVID-19 to donate their blood plasma. People who recover from a coronavirus infection typically have virus-blocking antibodies circulating in their blood in the weeks after they recover. These antibodies can be harvested in plasma donations and transfused to the next people who get sick, helping boost their immune systems. Blood plasma from people who have successfully recovered from coronavirus infections has been widely used in the U.S., even though researchers are still gathering evidence to show that it works in a definitive way. About 50,000 people have been transfused with this treatment so far, called convalescent plasma, under an expanded access program sponsored by the FDA. Meanwhile, a worrisome new study today in the Journal of the American Medical Association concludes that despite experiencing milder symptoms, children may carry as much of the coronavirus in their respiratory systems as adults. This would make them equally contagious. That poses a problem as schools reopen. In fact, several new outbreaks have already been linked to students starting to trickle back to college campuses. At least 40 cases have been linked to one party on Fraternity Row at the University of Southern California. Colorado State University suspended football team workouts after eight players there tested positive. Preseason football workouts have also been halted at Rutgers University after 15 football players tested positive. Authorities blame an on-campus party. A dozen cases at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, are also blamed on an off-campus social gathering where no masks were worn and students failed to practice social distancing. K-12 through school districts across our country are trying to decide how bad an outbreak would need to be in order to cause them to shut down again if they reopen. But many complain they are getting little guidance from federal or state officials. Number two. Trump drew rebukes yesterday from across the political spectrum after proposing a delay to the November election. His suggestion represented the president's latest and most dramatic attempt to undermine public faith in the November 3rd election. It's a trend that's been growing more frequent and emphatic, as polls have shown his political fortunes declining. The president has attacked mail voting nearly 70 times since late March in interviews, remarks, and tweets, including at least 17 times this month. Thursday's tweet came on the heels of a devastating report showing that our economy shrank nearly 10% from April through June, the largest quarterly decline ever recorded. Now, Trump, of course, does not have the authority to change the date of the election. The Constitution gives that power to Congress. Trump encountered unprecedented pushback to his idea from senior Republicans on Capitol Hill and conservative leaders outside government, as well as legal scholars, historians, and Democrats. No president has ever tried to postpone a federal election. 
The idea was floated to Abraham Lincoln in 1864 during the Civil War and to Franklin Roosevelt in 1942 during World War II. But Lincoln said at the time that postponing an election because of the Southern Rebellion, as he called it, would mean, quote, our system has been defeated. Roosevelt said doing so while fighting the fascists would mean, quote, we have become fascists ourselves. Indeed, one of the most dramatic critiques of Trump's tweet yesterday came from law professor Stephen Calabrese, a co-founder of the conservative Federalist Society, who wrote that the idea was, quote, fascistic and grounds for the president's immediate impeachment. Barack Obama delivered a call to action in his eulogy of the late Congressman John Lewis in Atlanta, urging Congress to pass new voting rights laws and likening tactics by Trump and his administration to those used by racist Southern leaders who fought the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Meanwhile, the U.S. Postal Service is experiencing days-long backlogs of mail across the country after a top Trump donor, who was just put in charge of the agency, has imposed new procedures described as cost-cutting efforts by him, but Alarmed postal workers are warning that the policies could undermine their ability to deliver ballots on time for the November election. Number three, the White House is willing to cut a deal with Democrats that leaves out Senate Republican legislation aimed at protecting companies, hospitals, and schools from coronavirus-related lawsuits. Two people with direct knowledge of internal White House planning tell my colleagues Jeff Stein and Erica Warner this morning that the White House wants and is pushing for the liability shield as a top priority, but would be willing to sign off on a deal that lacks those protections. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky, controls the Senate floor and could shoot down any deal that leaves out what he has said is a red line that must be included in any stimulus package. Senate Republicans in the Trump administration began moving yesterday to advance a temporary extension of expanded unemployment insurance. Confronting significant pressure to keep that temporary financial lifeline in place while negotiations on a broader bill continue to flounder. But the short-term efforts pushed by Republicans ran swiftly into Democratic resistance as top leaders chastised Senate GOP leaders and the administration for waiting until the final hours before the additional jobless aid expired to offer this proposal. After a two-hour meeting that stretched late into the night, the chief negotiators, including Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer on the Democratic side and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows on the Republican side made clear that they remain at an impasse. A top Republican pollster who spoke on the condition of anonymity to freely discuss private conversations says there is growing alarm among GOP rank and file lawmakers about the political consequences of letting these unemployment benefits lapse after today. And that is the Daily 202 for Friday, July 31st. Today is the last day to take our listener survey and give your feedback on The Daily 202 and our other post podcasts. We'd really love to get your thoughts, what you like, what you don't like, how we can better serve you. To share your feedback, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey, all one word. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. As always, thanks so much for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.